We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast. Up the Duff is a podcast for fertility seekers and those who are curious about procreation. Join us as we speak to experts and hear from real people on their fertility journeys. We ask the hard questions and help them navigate to solutions on the sometimes bumpy road that is to parenthood. Today on the Up the Duff podcast, we're joined by Jackie Armstrong. Jackie is vision impaired and we're joined by her beautiful guide dog, Bess, as well. Jackie embarked on fertility treatment for social reasons in her mid-30s, conceiving her baby Eloise at 43. I met Jackie when she was in the thick of her fertility journey and I cannot wait to share her story with you. Thanks so much for joining me, Jackie. Thanks, Brett. So you seek fertility treatment for social reasons, is that right? Yeah. Look, life circumstances, like I think many women, led me to a point where it was go it alone and, and look for support or or potentially not have the opportunity to have children. And I didn't want to regret not giving it a go. And I'm one of the very fortunate ones that um, I now have a beautiful little girl. So incredibly lucky. And I can't wait to dive more into your fertility treatment and IVF journey specifically. I want to also preface this conversation for everyone that's listening as well. Um, Jackie has a vision impairment, hence why her beautiful guide dog is here with us. And we are definitely going to talk about some of the obstacles she faced and some of the ways that the um, that we can all improve and also the medical community can improve and help people with vision impairments and other disabilities to navigate fertility treatment. So let's go back to your IVF. So you decided that's it. I'm not waiting for Prince Charming. I'm going to go this alone. Tell me a little bit about, you know, when you decided to start that process and then how it ended up. Look, it had been something that, like everyone, I think I had presumed that life was heading down one one particular pathway and I had a plan. It was all going to work out and then um, as as happens with life sometimes, circumstances change. I lost my mum as well as a few other things that made me think, well, you know, maybe I'm just not meant to be a mum. I don't have someone in my life committed enough to want to have children at this point. Um, I don't have a mum, so my support system had changed as well. And what we all envisage as having children is having that family around you. So, and I was in my, I think my early to mid-30s when those circumstances happened and I just thought, well, maybe I've missed my chance. Um, a few years went by, circumstances changed again, um, and it was actually my wonderful GP who said, well, if it's something you want to do, you better get on to it quickly. And like most women, I was like, well, I haven't met someone who's in a position to want to have children with me, so, oh, well, I guess I just have to be happy being a godmother and a, you know, favourite aunt. Um, and I hadn't really independently delved into the infertility world. I'm forever grateful to my fabulous GP who said, well, actually, this is an option for you and I really think you should look into it, Um, which was great. And it started a journey for me, which I think like many people was longer than I anticipated once I made the decision. Um, I had had a lot of things to think through, um, whether it was the right choice for a number of reasons for myself, Um, backtracking a little bit um, to what you spoke to earlier, Brett, I do have a vision impairment. I have a guide dog user. Uh, um, I am a guide dog user with guide dog Bess and she's my sixth guide dog. So I've been navigating the world with limited vision for quite some time now, really since birth. 
So I'm a twin and I was um, very premature with my twin sister and had what they call retinopathy of prematurity, which meant I had no sight in one eye and my twin sister has cerebral palsy and is a wheelchair user. And then I um, had an accident when I was a teenager and lost a significant amount of sight in my working eye which brought me to a circumstance and another adjustment of life, I suppose, where I got to get my first guide dog and it's opened up so many opportunities for me. Um, and I don't actually know that I would have had the confidence to go down the parenting route, particularly by myself, without having the skills and the confidence of working with a guide dog and, and the opportunities that has given me as far as mobility and independence. I have friends who are mums who use long canes and I think they're fabulous. Um, but like all of us, we make choices and we have comfort levels of what works for us. Um, and going back to your question, I suppose, um, I'll jump in with a question sure. for you here. So at the GP appointment initially, what was the advice that the GP gave you? Did they say you should consider freezing your eggs or was she like, let's just get this ball rolling and start full-blown IVF? Given my age, well, she said, look, go off and see a fertility specialist and get his advice. Um, she did some initial bloods for me, which indicated that you know, I was lucky. I, I sort of had, looked like I had a good shot um, of having decent fertility. Um, but also, I suppose that that discussion of, you know, how long did I want to wait? So is it worth freezing your eggs or do you just bite the bullet and go straight ahead? And that was a discussion I had with uh, my fertility specialist. I went off to to a specialist first, which was a bit of a confronting experience. Um, the initial specialist I consulted with sort of queried whether this was the right decision for me as a person. And I think diving into the fertility world, myself particularly, but I'm sure I'm not alone, there's a bit of insecurity, whether it's the right decision, the right direction. Is it the right decision for a theoretical child as well? Um, and particularly when you add having a disability on top of that, we already have, well, I know I do, a degree of imposter syndrome and, you know, do I have a right to be here? Am I good enough? And then when, whether the in, the intent was to sort of question whether myself as a prospective parent was worthy or not, or whether it was, is this the right decision because it's something he says to everybody, um, it really played into my insecurities. And I sort of went, right, well, maybe I'm not meant to be a mother. Went back to my GP and she lesser, said, don't be ridiculous, and sent me to someone else who has been absolutely incredible. And it was never a question at all um, that he and his team would support me. And um, we just went from there. I think it just really emphasizes the importance of finding your team. And it's something that comes up in pretty much every episode and everyone we talk to. It's about finding your community, uh, healthcare practitioners that are going to advocate for you and finding the right fit in terms of IVF doctor and fertility specialist. So you started the IVF process. What was that like for you? Oh, look, I think I think it's same for everybody. It's it's a very um, it's a big thing to take on, particularly when you're also navigating work. I suppose with my life experience to date, and also. I don't like the word older prospective parent, but I suppose, again, the experiences you have leading up to it. I'd had a lot of interaction with the medical community for different reasons. So that side of things wasn't overwhelming for me. It was more about, and I hadn't expected 
the time commitment with all the monitoring, the appointments, um, I suppose even the hormonal up and downs and how that impacted you on a daily basis when you're trying to hold the rest of your life together. Um, and I, like many people, didn't really announce to anyone that this was a journey I was on um, because you don't know what the outcome's going to be. It was a bit of a juggle. I think as as most most sort of people navigating IVF would experience. Um, and it's it it is. It's it's lots of ups and downs. Um, we're all we all, you know, I think we all, regardless of what our specialists might tell us, we're all convinced that, you know, the first round's going to work and we're going to be the one. And when it doesn't, you've got the ups and downs and yeah, yeah. navigating that. Like earlier we were talking about lining up out the front of the IVF clinic at 7am to yep. get your bloods done and all of that kind of stuff. I think the time commitment really is underestimated and add that on to a full-time job. And I know that you help care for your sister as well. It's It really is a lot. This podcast is sponsored by Ears Fertility. Ears Fertility has set a new standard for nutraceuticals for reproductive health. They are leading the way with their science-led formulations. But don't just take our word for it. Make sure you learn more by hitting the link in our show notes. So how many egg retrievals did you go through? I did four um, complete rounds of IVF. Um, I only ever did one fresh transfer, um, but after that, um, given my age and a few other sort of circumstances, I did the PGS testing. Um, so they're all sort of frozen embryo transfers after that. Yeah. Okay. And then so how many embryo transfers did you go through? I believe it's nine. I'll have to go back and check my nine. records. Yeah. It's crazy because like you said, everyone thinks that the first time it's going to work and then when you're looking down the, you know, the tunnel of potentially, you know, more and more embryo transfers, how many embryos did you have on ice? I've still got four, I think, in You've the freezer. You've still got four left. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, I don't know, there's this, gosh, I'm lucky to still have that. But um, I think my final round, it was a very different protocol and my specialist and I had had a bit of a discussion given my age as far as well. This is, this is you know, totally different protocol, last shot. And um, it was quite a good outcome for this cycle, so, or that cycle. Um, yeah. And it's the one which gave me my daughter, so. Yeah, and yeah. that's the other thing that keeps coming up. If something's not working, don't keep trying the same thing over and over again. Change the protocol. Try something different. And that's, and that's, you know, that's absolutely been the attitude of my specialist, which I'm really grateful for. But I do hear from from friends and, and, and others who are navigating IVF, he'll tell me they've done six to eight transfers and nothing's changed. And I find it quite astounding. And I think that brings me to, to I suppose, my concerns and, and the need for education and consideration around the whole question of disability. Um, two, of, two of my sort of friends who are going through IVF and they've talked about not having changes of protocols, they have both said to me, I think they're not taking me seriously and I think they're just doing the same thing because they don't really want it to work because I have a disability. And I find that really sad. That um, is sad. And, and I can't say to them, absolutely not, you're wrong, because I think because of my experiences with different different circumstances, I can understand why they might have that, have that opinion. So, you know, yeah. in both cases, I've strongly encouraged them to go and see 
other people, which thankfully they're doing, which is great. Yeah, the power of second opinions and also that ability to advocate for yourself mm. is so important. And particularly in, in the medical field and IVF, where we all feel very vulnerable, it can be challenging to be a really strong advocate. And look, I'm the first to say I'm really good at giving advice, but not so good at following it myself sometimes. So it's useful to sit back and watch and sort of observe someone's experience and go, actually, that's not okay. Um, and to support someone and give them the strength to question and to support themselves. Yeah, yeah. So I understand you're doing some mentoring work mm -hmm. with people who also have disabilities who are navigating fertility treatment. Is that right? Yeah. Look, I wouldn't say it's official. Men I do mentoring sort of in general. Yeah. Um, unsurprisingly, I think given demographics, um, it just so happens that a few of these, these people have actually said to me, and some of them have been quite far down their journey, we're doing IVF. And I've gone, oh, really? Um, let me tell you about my experience because we don't really discuss, I mean, a lot of people Unless you're in the fertility community, you don't go out there and start a conversation with someone over coffee. Oh, hey, I've done IVF. Um, so for them to feel confident to raise that with me has been terrific in that I'm glad I can support them and provide some some of my experiences and and, and give them some support. Yeah, that was definitely something that we spoke about with Sean Zeffs um, in a previous episode as well about finding your community and how important that is and finding that support network, that village, <laughs> which we all know as mothers and parents is so important. But I think when you're seeking fertility treatment as well, you really need to find that support and community. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know, um, what are some of the obstacles that you faced seeking fertility treatment as a vision impaired person and also some of the other obstacles that these people that you're supporting at the moment are facing? Yeah, look, obviously as someone with with um, low vision, one of my biggest, biggest barriers is access to information. Um, these days a lot of things are websites, um, social media, and just through how we format information, of, often it's not accessible. Now, I use screen re readers occasionally, but I have friends who rely on them 100%. Um, and if we haven't formatted things correctly, they just won't work. So you don't get the information. Uh, myself, it's having, having low vision. I'm one of these people who actually a very visual learner. I like to read. But if the text isn't clear or if there's not enough contrast between between fonts, I won't be able to read it either. So one of the big things, and particularly initially when you're looking at navigating IVF, it's about getting access to information. The second biggest challenge for me um, as a guide dog handler is my guide dog being welcomed. And sometimes that can be um, somewhat challenging, particularly in a medical environment where we haven't had the education completely understand that there's a, there's sort of the cleanliness and the health aspect of things, but it's people understanding not just the legal per perspective, which is that guide dogs are welcome pretty much everywhere except an operating theatre. Um, it's that inclusion and it's that acceptance and that attitude. Um, yeah. And I remember you telling me a story previously about your fertility specialist and how he had an allergy yeah. to your guide dog. I know. And, and I think, I think he gets a bit embarrassed when I tell this story because he, and that's the thing. And it makes me like him even more. Um, he never said a word and it was still not him that told me of his allergy. Um, I, I, I went to literally years of appointments. I had my guide dog um, 
with me up at sort of Janae Day surgery in that never said a word. Um, it wasn't actually until I was pregnant and it was his partner in the practice, my, who was my obstetrician, who made the comment of my, my, my specialist allergy. I went, you've got to be kidding. Um, and, and I mean, I, I just think that's incredible that he was, it was never an issue. Um, yeah. And he put aside his own, whatever, his genuine, potentially genuine sort of concern um, and a legitimate reason to actually say to me, Oh, actually, would you mind leaving your guide dog at home or in the waiting room? Yeah. Um, what a contrast to never. the previous exactly. experiences yeah. you'd yeah. had. And I'm, yeah, really grateful for yeah. that um, because it just removed a layer of, of sort of stress that you can encounter in other areas. Yeah. Yeah. What a wonderful fertility specialist. It's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so what are the, some of the ob- other obstacles? Like earlier we were talking about accessing information. So I'm thinking websites, medical forms, Mm -hmm. some of the fertility treatments, the labels on the fertility treatments and the instructions. What about the the beds? The yeah, for people with physical disabilities, obviously, you know, access as we know it more traditionally. Steps getting into a building. Um, how do we find a lift? So just navigating an actual environment. So having that information on your website as far as how to find your building and how to find your office, actually, sort of step by step instructions, so people don't have to go and do the research for themselves. Um, but yes, certainly within the consulting environment, have beds that lower and raise for people who are wheelchair users. Um, But most importantly, have that disability awareness training. Uh, Again, I was really lucky with the, I suppose, with the inclusive attitudes of my specialists. They, you know, my my specialists learned about sighted guides. So when I go into a procedure room and obviously it wasn't appropriate to take my guide dog, I'd just take his arm and, you know, he'd tell me where we were going Um, with sort of all the scans and ultrasounds, he'd tell me what he was seeing and, and, you know, he would take photos of the embryos on the screen with my phone for me so then I could see it. Just those considerations um, and having that awareness um, and really the attitudes overcome a lot of the, lot of the barriers. They really do. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So we've spoken about some of the obstacles that people accessing fertility treatment may face. Are there any great books or resources that may help to support someone who has a disability and is trying to access fertility treatment? Yeah, it's interesting, actually. I When I started this journey, I um, didn't really find any. And it was, again, like you spoke about creating your village. It's about having those conversations. I was incredibly fortunate that a um, number of people in my sort of IVF team, which included you, Britt, um, hadn't really had direct experience of working with people with, with vision loss before, but again, had that fantastic attitude, which opened things up for me. Over time, and I, there's a lot of resources, well, I wouldn't say a lot, um, but as far as navigating parenting with a disability, um, Eliza Hull, H-U-L-L, um, is a fantastic author um, who put out a, a book of essays saying, we've got this, is a title. And it's fantastic stories of people with many different types of disabilities and their parenting journeys. She's also recently released a children's book called Come Over to My Place, which is depicting different families with different disabilities for children to have that education on 
everyone's family looks different and, and it's whether sort of we're same-sex couples or we have disabilities that the, the definition of family is very different and it's creating that education. But as far as fertility, I looked, I looked on socials, I looked on websites and I couldn't really find a community per se. And I think that's why it's really important to continue having the conversations and for our specialists to be proactive in this space. Um, break down some of the barriers and ask your patients or your prospective patients, what can I do to make this easier for you? If you want to be really um, proactive, um, Australian Network on Disability has quite a lot of information on accessibility generally. I don't really believe they sort of cover fertility as a specialist subset, but there's a lot of information out there as far as hospital environments and just general disability awareness training, which I would really encourage everybody to do. Well, thank you so much, Jackie, for sharing your story, all your wisdom and really advocating for the disability community. We will, of course, leave the links to all the things that Jackie recommended, including the organisations and books she's recommended in the show notes. Thanks, Britt. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Up The Duff podcast. We hope that this episode provoked some inspiration. Keep up to date with all things Up The Duff by hitting the subscribe button. And just a heads up, by request, we've started a Facebook group so we can continue the conversation over there. You can find the link in the show notes. Don't be shy, leave us a review. And if you have a topic, question or expert that you would like us to interview, please slide into our DMs. You'll find all the links to our social pages in the show notes. 